addition to being an amazing worship pastor, Dan also puts together our, our cutscenes before, and I told him, thanks a lot, but I love the Beatles, and that song in particular is a huge earwig for me, and so the entire time I'm up here preaching, that's the only thing I'm thinking about over and over. <laughs> so thanks, Dan. I, uh, so I picked a, a song today that was, to put it lightly, a little before my time. Um, and I didn't, I, I didn't do it, you know, to uh, like show how smart I am about music or anything. I, uh, I did it because um, for the first part of my life, really music before I was born was really all I knew. And that sounds funny, but um, I'll explain. Uh, so my dad, uh, Vietnam vet, um, loved classic rock. And of course to him it was just rock, because it was what he listened to when he was growing up. <laughs> <clears throat> and, uh, you know, and, uh, and so since he had control over the car radio, the radio at home, stereo, everything, um, I grew up on you know, Creedence Clearwater Revival, Three Dog Night, uh, The Beatles, the band, um, solo artists like Elton John, Nielsen, and Leon Russell. I feel like I got a great education in music. If my, if my dad was a little bit rock and roll, my mom was a little bit country. <laughs> and, uh, but I got the same treatment from her. So the country artists I knew growing up um, weren't, you know, Reba McIntyre, Travis Tritt. It was... It was Patsy Cline and Johnny Cash. I didn't, I didn't actually know much about music after 1980 until I went to middle school. And people started bringing music to me. Have you heard you know, Nirvana? I literally missed grunge. Like that whole 90s scene in Seattle, didn't even know it happened until I was like way past it. And I actually developed, it was funny, I developed this sort of like whippersnapper complex for music from like the 60s and the 70s. I think every generation has this like, you know, the generation after mine, that's not real music, you know, they don't, you know, it's all computers now, it's da 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 But I felt the same way about music from the 60s and 70s, and so I always felt like I was probably 20 years older than I actually was. I think the thing that I enjoyed the most, though, about music from that era was that it was simpler. Um, and I know people say that a lot about the music that they grow up with, but I feel like what that music did was access simpler emotions and simpler ideologies. And it, it gave us emotions and ideas in a way that were really easy to digest. Songs were fairly straightforward. Um, and while I was writing this, this sermon, I actually had the idea for the sermon, and I was thinking of what I wanted, what song I wanted for an illustration. I came through like two or three songs before I landed on this, and I thought, that's just, that's appropriate. So let's sit back for a few seconds and listen to a little bit of Walk the Line by Johnny Cash.
keep a close watch on this heart of mine I keep my eyes wide open all the time I keep the ends out for the tie that binds Because you're mine I walk the line A really interesting fact about that song that literally has nothing to do with my sermon. I just thought it was super interesting. Um, there's a very, <laughs> there's a very interesting uh, like phenomenon before he starts a verse where he hums, and people always thought it was a stylistic thing. the The truth of the matter is that Johnny Cash was actually technically a very bad singer, um, and there's somewhere around five key changes in that song. And what he was doing was finding the key so that he could actually sing in tune for the rest of the verse. So I thought that was real. I was like, you know, because people are always like, oh, he does that, you know, that hum. Yeah, it's so that he doesn't mess up when he sings. So I thought that was super cool. So it's got this, this message of walk the line. What I wanted to talk to you guys today about was this whole idea of being in the world but not of it, which is kind of a, a line we walk in and of itself. Now, a lot of times when you hear this phrase, be in the world but not of it, it's almost always set up with the phrase, the Bible says. The Bible says, be in the world but not of it. And I would challenge you to find that phrase anywhere in the Bible, because it's not. Um, what it is, though, is a conglomeration of a lot of different verses and an idea that is perpetuated throughout most of the New Testament. So where does it come from? One of the scriptures, 1 John 2, 15 through 17, says this, Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, love for the Father is not in them. For everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away. But whoever does the will of God lives forever. So in this verse, we see this idea that there's all this stuff that's in the world that we're supposed to stay away from. He actually lists off three things, the lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Those things he says specifically, stay away from that. It's not from God. This is, these are things you'll find in the world. Another such verse is uh, Romans 12, 22. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Again, we have this idea of essentially a higher calling, uh, this dichotomy between things that are in the world being of a lower nature, things that are in heaven, things that are of God being a higher calling, something we should aspire to. But our charge simply is this, that while we're stuck living here on earth, we must still engage in the world around us. Jesus says a lot of stuff in the Bible. Um, <laughs> I know, right? Uh, right. <laughs> Woo! End of sermon. No, um, <laughs> Jesus says a lot of stuff in the Bible. There are times, though, that he sets certain things apart. Um, he tells us, you know, our greatest commandment is to love the Lord, our Father, of our heart, our soul, and our mind. He said the second thing, right, is to love one another. 
but a lot of times it's situational. He places importance on things that are situational. One of those things is the Great Commission. It's literally one of the last things he says before he ascends into heaven. And we find that in Matthew 28, 18 through 20. It says, Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, that word, therefore, you know something's coming after that word. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. That command, therefore, go. It's so important because it's the last thing he says. So it's obviously very important. If I was on my deathbed, I wouldn't roll over and with my dying breath tell Brianna, by the way, <clears throat> there's laundry in the dryer. <laughs> you know? <laughs> if, I, if I knew it was the last thing I was saying, I'd make it really important. So it's really important what he's saying here. While it would be easier to constantly remember our citizenship in heaven and to isolate ourselves with those thoughts, we'd neglect our situation here on earth. We actually, if we focus too much on the things of heaven, forget what it means to actually be in the world. Being in the world. If I'm honest with you, it's hard. It's hard to, to be in a place that doesn't share the same ideas and the same values as you. <clears throat> I think each one of us has found ourselves in a situation amongst a group of friends or amongst a group of coworkers where you know the things that they value in life aren't the same as what you value. It doesn't, it's not a, it's not a, a value judgment you're not putting yourself above them, but you know it's just not the same. And truth be told, as Christians, we should look at the world and feel the same way. We know that the world values things like money and fame and power. And as Christians, a lot of times, that stuff not only is, is something that we rail against, it's something that, quite honestly, we just don't have any interest in. So what does it mean when I say something like, we need to be in the world? Paul kind of reminds us of this. Uh, you'll find this verse in Corinthians 9, 19 through 23. He tells us a little bit what it looks like for him to be in the world. This is a chunk of text, and, and I'm going to take it a little bit at a time and kind of break it down. So if it looks daunting and ridiculous, that's because it is. Um, so he starts out by saying, though I'm free and belong to no one, I've made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. <clears throat> There's patterns in Paul's letters. And a lot of times he'll tell us something and then give us some examples and then tell us again. This is, this is him setting up I'm getting ready to give you some examples of ways I do this. He's saying, he's saying I've made myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. I'm doing something in my life to win people to Christ. And then he's getting ready to give us a bunch of examples of how he does that. He says, to the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. 
a lot of the same word, but the repetition is important because he's trying to get across to us who he's talking about. <clears throat> the reason this is important was that Paul himself was a Jew, and that even though he was a Roman citizen, he kind of had this, this viewpoint from both sides of both the government and the people. The reason it's important to say to the Jews, I became like a Jew, <clears throat> you really have to understand what that meant in this time period. Um, there, were these, there were these things, and I'm, I'm not a Hebrew nor a Judaism scholar, so I'm, I'm going to kind of glance over this, but there are things called mitzvahs in the Torah, and essentially they're just commandments, okay? Um, but it's really important because mitzvahs are things that God has commanded his people to do, and you see them all throughout the Old Testament, the first few books of the Old Testament, um, spe specifically in books like Leviticus. Essentially, Leviticus is a big book of rules. Um, so we have these mitzvahs that he's given. Uh, some rabbinical scholars have come up with the number 613. There are 613 mitzvahs or commandments in the Torah. A lot of modern-day Jews actually still follow a large majority of the mitzvahs. Not all 613. When you, when you get to 613, you're talking Orthodox Judaism and people who live a very separate life from what we consider modern Judaism. Um, researching this, I found out there are somewhere around 30 mitzvahs that involve the baking of challah bread. 30 rules. And so it's everything from like, you know, this is where your grain comes from, this is how you mix it, to I take a ball of dough, and um, you give part of it up as an offering. And so in, in Orthodox Judaism, you take a ball of dough, and you wrap it in foil, and you sit it at the back of your oven, and it literally burns. So you give up a burnt offering when you make challah bread. So what he's saying here is, look, I, I know you've got these rules, and I, I don't live under these rules anymore. This isn't me. I'm free from these rules. But you know what? For your sake, while I'm talking to you, that's what we'll do. You know, so if you want me to follow your rituals before we sit down and eat, I'll follow the rituals before we sit down and eat, because that's important to you. It doesn't matter to me, but it's important to you. He goes on to say, to those under the law, I became like one under the law, though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. Again, a lot of words. Now there is, <clears throat> semantically, there is a difference between saying Jew and someone under the law, but for our purposes today, it's essentially the same concept. The law he's talking about is Mosaic law, and the law is found in the Torah. So again, people that follow these mitzvahs, people that follow this way of life, He's saying, again, I'm following these rules that you follow because it makes you comfortable. And then he goes on and says, to those not having the law, I became like one not having the law. Though I am not free from God's law, but I am under Christ's law. So he's saying to the Gentiles, and if, if you're not aware of that dichotomy in the, in the, in the Jewish tradition, you are either Jewish or you're not. There's really no further division. Um, so you're a Jew or you're a Gentile. If you're not Jewish, anything else, any other religion, race, creed, you're a Gentile. So he's, those would be people not under the law. He's saying, when I was around 
regular Roman citizens, when I was out spreading the gospel in other places where Judaism wasn't a thing, I acted like they acted. He, did, he, does, he does provide a small caveat. He does say, though I'm not free from God's law. So it doesn't mean that um, you know, he, was, he was doing things that God wouldn't want him to do. Um, he was just doing some stuff that God didn't ask him to do. Um, you know, he wasn't out, uh, I guess the modern day equivalent would be like he wasn't out drinking and gambling with the Gentiles at the time, you know, and partying it up. He was still, still felt pressure under God's law, but um, he still did a lot of the stuff that they did to make them feel comfortable. <clears throat> this next one, to the weak, I became weak to win the weak. Um, some commentaries suggest that this is a reference to a, a time, um, I believe he was in Smyrna, and he was working, and the church was trying to provide him money for setting up the church, and he refused it, and he would actually, in his off time, go and work really menial, like, labor-intensive jobs to earn money, to earn his keep while he was there. It was important to him not, he did take money from other churches, but it was important while he was setting up this church to not take money. So the, the reference here is to people who were in a weak position, like, socially. So I became like they did. So he went out in the fields, and he worked with people, and he did these jobs along with them. He became just like the menial laborers of his day when he was setting up some of these churches. Essentially, though, he did it so that he could, so that he could sympathize. He could empathize with these people and win them over. I've become all things to all people so that by all possible means, I might, have, I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessing. <clears throat> One quick word about that. He uses the phrase that I might save some. It's really important in today's evangelical culture to realize you're not going to save everybody. Well, I'm not going to save anyone. God's going to save people. But even through us, he's not saving everyone. There are going to be people who deny the call of the gospel. And that's fine. That's part of our experience here. But don't be discouraged, I think Paul would tell you. What Paul's saying here overall is that although he's not bound by the things of this world, he still had to engage with those around him on a level that they understood. Paul's voluntarily, in some cases, enslaving himself to the legalism that surrounds him or the predicament of the people around him in order to win them over as converts. See, we're, we're free from, from legalism as Christians. We're free to live a life under Christ that doesn't require us to follow 30 steps to bake bread in the afternoon. Like We're free from all of these laws that have been presented in the Old Testament. We're free from dietary laws in Leviticus. We're free to wear clothing of you know, mixed fabric. We're free to do all of these things that at one point in time followers of God weren't allowed to do. We're free from that. But Paul's giving up his identity and following these rules solely for the sake of spreading the gospel. 
when Johnny Cash uh, wrote Walk the Line, he was, he was newly married to his first wife, Vivian. Um, they had children on the way. And he was getting ready to go out on the road. And uh, even early in his career, um, we'll say marital fidelity was an issue. Um, some drug use, uh, some drinking. Um, he wrote the song as a promise to Vivian to say, look, I, uh, I know this has been an issue in the past, but I promise. I promise to walk the line. I promise to, to behave in a way that you find acceptable. What Johnny's saying is he's going to give up part of who he is. I mean, part of, part of what he does on a daily basis is live this lifestyle, agree with it or not. It is part of who he is. He's going to give that up to give into his wife's wishes. The thing is, we, we do that for God. We do that for our spouses, but we do it for God too. We give up our identity, sometimes adopting another identity, for the sake of better things in our life. And in this case, for the sake of all the joy that, God's bring, that God brings in our lives and for the sake of spreading the gospel. We adopt these identities and these ideas for better purposes. So what does that actually look like for us? This has been some kind of lofty ideology and this has been fun kind of playing with the words, but, but when it comes down to it, when you leave the, the building today, what does that look like? Because I can, I can stand up here and, and I can rail against legalism and cultish behavior. I was researching and, and I was thinking about um, a lot of the roots of, of the Church of God um, actually come from the Anabaptist tradition, which today um, gives us the Amish and the Mennonite churches. Um, and I got to thinking about those churches in particular and how <clears throat> they're some of the most faithful people um, that I could think of. They, their whole life is centered around serving God. The one downfall I see in that model, um, and again, not to disrespect their faith at all because I, I admire what they do. Um, they don't reach people outside of their community. They've cut themselves off. Some, some Amish communities in particular make it a, a steadfast rule not to have contact with anyone outside of their communities. So I can stand up here and talk about you know, cultish behaviors and Christian sects or, or you know, New Age this or New Age that. And we can get hung up on some minor inconsequential behaviors of other people. I could get up here, I could, you know, preach on any modern day behavior from gambling to drinking to smoking and your body's a temple and da da da, da. <clears throat> But what the question is that we need to ask ourselves, is it damaging our ability to reach people with the gospel message? When we do these things, when we talk about people on Facebook, or we admonish people in public for the things that they do. Although we're called a lot of times to do that to believers, is our sticking point with other people's behavior a barrier to the gospel? That's what you have to ask. It's hard to be in the world. But sometimes we have to, self-reference, sometimes we got to walk the line, right, of remembering that we are still in this world. 
we do a really good job of reminding ourselves and others that we have a higher calling. We not only live in a country that up until recently, the majority of people identified as Christians, we live in a part of that country that that percentage is even higher. So when we go out into our communities and we say, have you heard of the saving grace of Jesus Christ? I'm going to guarantee you nine times out of ten they've heard it. If they're not at church, there's another reason. We do a really, really good job of reminding us and the people around us of that higher calling. We constantly remind the world around us that we're not of this place. And we know that we're not of this world. So what we need to focus on from time to time, and I'm not saying all the time, but from time to time, we need to focus on what it looks like to be in the world. I'm not talking about violating your personal morals. I don't want you, you know, if you're, if you're not a drinker, I don't want you to go out to the bar tonight and grab a drink with somebody to spread the gospel message. There were, there were movements in the 70s in particular um, that were really, really bad about violating biblical principles all for the sake of spreading the gospel message, um, including drug use and things like that. Um, I'm not talking about that. But maybe the things that a lot of times we think are frivolous activities or a waste of time, maybe we just stop chastising other Christians simply for their religious practices or the things that we think are a waste of time. The, the church of God was partially founded on this idea of encompassing and embracing believers in Christ of all types. It's why we shy away from using the word denomination. It's an attempt not to divide ourselves, but to encompass believers of all sorts. It may be difficult to walk the line of honoring our commitment to God's kingdom and our home here on earth. The truth of the matter is we're called to do that. And let me say it again. We have this higher commitment, this higher calling to God's kingdom. But we're also called to be here and be present and be active. Look, Johnny gets it right. In the, uh, in the first verse, he says, I keep a close watch on this heart of mine. And we have to do that. And I want to stress this over and over. It's why this is so touchy. I'm walking the line when I'm preaching this sermon because it's, it's a touchy one. We have to be vigilant about the world and how it affects us. I, <clears throat> I like sad music. It's just, I like it. Bands like Counting Crows and Bright Eyes, and I feel like that guy's perpetually just like two minutes away from having broke up with his last girlfriend. And I, well, I love the music, but Breeze pointed out to me on several occasions, you seem down lately. And she's gotten to the point where she will say, are you, are you listening to Bright Eyes again? <laughs> yes. The things in this world affect us. And we're, we're lying to ourselves if we, if we don't think that's true. There are so many things in this world that can snare us up. But Johnny goes on to say, I keep my eyes wide open all the time. We have 
to keep our eyes open to the opportunities that God presents us to spread his word. Even if it means doing something that isn't demanded by God, we need to be careful we're not snaring ourselves in legalism. He says, because you're mine, I walk the line. It's very difficult to balance being in the world and honoring our true home in heaven. But we do it because God himself came to us in the form of Jesus and showed us he came into the world. He showed us how. That's how you're in the world.